Hey, y'all. Today, in episode 139 of Reclaiming the Faith, my wife and I look at how Paul deals with people who preach the gospel out of unrighteous motives like envy. The Bible sure is relevant for today, isn't it? Guys, I want to give you all a quick update on my album. It is due to drop on Friday, October 28th. So put that on your calendar and be ready to stream or download it on that day. And please uh, share that with friends and family if you would. Also on October 27th, I'm going to drop a video that my brother Mike Stibbs did for me uh, from one of the songs on the album. It's called All My Future. So you'll be able to see that the day before the album drops just to kind of wet your whistle a little bit. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and you can find all of our content on the YouTube channel Omega Frequency Live, or you can go to omegafrequency.com, and you can get links to all of my content on philsbaker.com, uh, whether that be links to my books, music, Patreon page, the blog I used to write way back in the day, all that stuff is there, so go check that out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 139, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. We're really glad you're able to join us tonight. We're going to be um, going through Philippians 1, 15 through 18, and That's we're right. excited to have a nice break in the normal day-to-day. This is something that we look forward to every week, so glad you could make it. So just for context's sake, we're going to start off in verse 12 and read through 15, or 18. So remember, this is Paul, house arrest basically in uh, Rome around the year 60, 61, somewhere in there, uh, while Emperor Nero is the, uh, the emperor. All right, so he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this, I rejoice. Something I just wanted to highlight briefly before we get rolling, three times in this, in this passage that we have going on today, um, the word imprisonment is used. Twice it's used in like a positive way, and one it's used in kind of a negative way. And it's depending on whose perspective Paul's imprisonment is being looked through. And... The first two times, Paul's saying that his imprisonment is actually leading to the greater progress of the gospel. And 
not just that the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else in Rome knows that he's there because of Christ, but it's causing the brethren in Rome to speak the word of God without fear and have more courage. Then later on, he says that his imprisonment is being looked upon by certain preachers of the gospel also as a good thing, not a good thing for the gospel, but a good thing for them. They're actually happy that Paul's in prison because it benefits them in a very fleshly way. So verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also from goodwill. Before we get into this word envy, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Um, so this envy has like this strong feeling um, that sours due to the influence of sin. So it's like, it's being glad when someone else experiences misfortune or pain. So when I was younger, at, at age 16, I started playing uh, bass guitar basically in different bars with my brother in College Station. That's where, for those of y'all who aren't familiar with, with Texas, that's where uh, Texas A&M University is. Whoop. Hey, yeah, Stephanie went there for a couple of years yeah. before going to LaSalle in Philly. And my brother was there. And so uh, I really was hoping to be like a full-time musician and it's interesting that even though I love music so much, in younger days when I would go to concerts, I wouldn't be able to enjoy them because I was just basically watching for someone or something that I could criticize. And it's interesting how I'm, I was missing out on, um, on enjoyment, um, missing out on this happiness, this just natural happiness that comes from listening to music because... This envy was filling me. And, you know, I don't know if that's ever totally gone away, um, at least the temptation to choose envy. Um, but like I can remember even uh, when I started leading worship um, and going to worship services where I wasn't leading guitar or leading on guitar or singing or whatever and not really being able to en enjoy it. And um, I think a lot of that was coming out of, of envy as well. And... So we're going to get into how that maybe is a trait that a lot of people in ministry deal with um, a little bit later. But I just wanted to, before, um, before we start pulling specs out, um, I wanted to pull a plank out first, all right? Because this is going to get a little bit heavy as we go along. So let's dive in. In case you think envy is not that big of a deal, again, it has this strong feeling that sours due to the influence of sin. It is the miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. Envy will energize someone that has a negative mind coming into a situation. Like if you're wanting to see people fail, and they fail, it brings this energy or this like fleshly jacked up happiness. Yeah. Or, or the envy ins like inspires you, mm. but it not in like a good way necessarily. It may inspire you out of jealousy to, to, to pursue what they have and it, it invigorates people. It energizes in that way. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we talked about before is this law of first mention. So a lot of times we'll, you'll get the uh, 
basic definition of a word by looking at the first time it's used in scripture. Um, and it's really neat, this Matthew 27 passage. This is Jesus on trial, and it's an incredible, incredible um, passage. Uh, it says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, bar, that prefix bar means like son of, and Abba, obviously, means God. father, yeah. the father, oh. right? Which Jesus refers to as God. God the father is how it's used, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Abba is, is father. So Barabbas is the son of the father standing next to the real son of the father. Mm. It's a really interesting um, parallel that Matthew uses and the gospel writers use. Um, who do we want? Do we want the real son of God the father or do we want the one who's come to steal, kill, and destroy? Barabbas being that like anti-son of the father, this true insurrectionist. And the people clamor for the fake one. Mm -hmm rather than the real. And um, this passage right here, in my opinion, is a picture of the coming great deception, in a sense, that the people of God view Jesus as the enemy and instead choose to receive the false one. Say that again. They view Jesus as an enemy mm -hmm. and instead welcome a false son of the father, basically, the Antichrist. As Paul would be talking about in Second right. Thessalonians 2, this great deception comes. Mm -hmm. And he says that before Jesus is coming to us, uh, the lawless one must be revealed and this great falling away has to happen. And I just think this is kind of like a type of that coming. Just a few of Phil's thoughts for whatever they're worth. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew, and check this out, he knew, verse 18, that because of envy, they had handed him over. Why did they betray, or not betray, why did they ask for Jesus to be crucified? Because of envy. And that's just incredible to me that that is the main um, work of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh that's driving the murder of the Messiah is envy. That's just incredible. So you can read um, the rest for yourself, but I do want to see this. Uh, I want y'all to see this part in verse 24 of that same chapter, Matthew 27. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves, like you crucify him. And all the people said, all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Hmm. That is just, unimaginable. Yeah. Let my children be accursed. Yeah. That's how strongly they believed that he was not the Messiah they wanted. Yeah. 
Yeah, they couldn't deny what he was doing. Right. The miracles. And just like in John, I think it's John 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they're like, we can't deny this. They not only are plotting to murder Jesus, they're plotting to murder Lazarus too. Mm. In John 11, and it says, you know, we have to get rid of him or else the Romans are going to take away our place in our nation. You know, it's just, if you look at that, if I look at that and I only see those Jewish leaders, I'm missing a major point. I mean, I need to be able to see myself there. Yeah. I mean, these, these were people that were pretty well studied, you know, that are saying this. They're, they have spent their lives devoted to studying, you know, the scriptures mm-hmm. and they've missed it. Yeah, missed you got him. the high priest yeah. and his father-in-law who was also the high priest and then before him. Beyond that, you have the people that just trust those people and they follow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So yes, envy really is that dangerous and destructive. Ron Freeman says, envy is, it's kind of like crabs in a bucket. As one gets close to climbing out, the rest pull him back down. Yeah. It's really- It's a great analogy. Yeah. It's really easy to be brought into this and to think that you're, you're doing pretty good in this area. I mean, I think that, you know, I know that this is envy has been something that you and I have talked about a lot, especially with music stuff. I remember there was a long time where you would tell me, I mean, you'd want to go to a concert really bad, like for your birthday or something like that, or anniversary. And we'd go see somebody that I knew you were excited to see. And there's that part of you that was like, why not me? (laughs) You know? And you couldn't fully enjoy the experience that you wanted to enjoy so much. Yeah. Out of envy. Yeah. Yeah. Very dangerous. Mm-hmm. All right. So some are preaching Christ from envy and strife. So envy and strife. Strife, it's this, you want to fight. You're ready for a fight and you want to fight. Mm-hmm. You got a contentious spirit. You have an affection. Oh my gosh. An affection for dispute. Like belligerent? Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe that's like uh, an outpouring of this. Yeah. Like an overflow of that. Um, you know, as I've gotten as I've gotten older and out of shape, you know, I used to play basketball a lot. And that's one way I could get a lot of the energy out and get my competitive spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't know. I, I could do something competitive that made me feel, I don't know, good about myself. Yeah. yeah, accomplished. And now I don't have that as much. And so one of the things that I've often like, that I find joy in is a good debate. Yeah. And that's not exactly godly. It's not healthy. It doesn't work well with our marriage either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like a good debate. No, no. I like to sit back and let maybe someone else debate. I don't like to be a part of it. Yeah. And, and while, you know, being able to defend the faith is a very important thing, like, like we've been talking about in Philippians with, um, you know, it's a defense of the gospel that Paul's in jail for. And that word defense is, is an apology. Um, we're always supposed to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Um, as First Peter says, but we're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. And that's not coming from an attitude of strife. Right. Those are kind of in opposition to each other. Paul really hits on that 
Um, in Galatians 5, Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets itself, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you in the past. I've warned you before, and I'm warning you again, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That right there is a really scary, scary line. Yeah. It's lines like these that make preachers want to not highlight those, those passages and focus more on like the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Downplay these works of the flesh not really talk about them as much because there are scary lines like that all through the Bible. I mean, because that's all of us, right? At some place, right? Sometime, and even those that have been, you know, reborn, those that have, um, you know, had uh, a spiritual awareness of their need for a savior and have, you know, experienced salvation and sanctification, we're still have outbursts of anger. That one, that one's really in disputes and dissensions. Like, I mean, that's, that's all of us. And so that, I mean, where do we go from there? Yeah. I mean, you know, it does say those who practice these things. So this doesn't need to be something that's a part of our daily life. Yeah. You know, it's something that may come up, but we need to repent of that and bring the body of Christ around us. We certainly shouldn't praise any of these things. So like, Right. If we are calling evil things good, then I think we know that there's some serious need for repentance. Yeah. Like, you know, in in debating, an outburst of anger may seem like you're going to win your argument. Right. That's probably not a good thing. Right. So that's the first um, set of people that are preaching Christ. Now, they are not preaching a false gospel, like the really super, super basics is not false. They're, they're preaching Christ, but they're doing it from these like horrible motives. And with those things, there is a huge warning from Paul, as you see in his like letter to the Galatians. Like these are not things that are like light. Uh, It's just a little envy. It's just a little strife that we're preaching. No, these are like very, very serious things. Um, I don't want to downplay that, but they are preaching Christ. It's not like they're Gnostics. And, um, you know, uh, as I was doing some of this, I was, and you can see it on the, uh, on the little, what's that thing called? Um, goodness gracious, the thumbnail, the thumbnail of oh. the uh, YouTube <laughs> video. I'm sorry, that word thumbnail wouldn't come. And it's a picture of Kenneth Copeland um, juxtaposed next to, um, to a picture of Paul from the movie about Paul, the Apostle Paul. 
And it's interesting. I, I was looking at Kenneth Copeland's website because the guy's just nuts. I mean, I mean, everybody's seen the the rap videos of him blowing COVID nineteen away. Yeah, you know. I think also his like flashiness is what gets people's attention. Like his over the top materialism. Like this is good for me to have this. So and the jets. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah, the, yeah. And having jets and like multiple mansion kind of things. I don't even know if that's true. I could. Yeah, saying he has to fly in a jet because there are too many demons in coach. So I put him up there um, because on his website, if you click on the link, like how to become a Christian, and you watch this like six minute video, it's basically just a standard Protestant, like standard Baptist gospel presentation that you would hear at a vacation Bible school. Like it's so easy, a kid can understand it. It's so basic. And there was nothing like glaringly wrong. Not at all. Not at all. If you're like coming from a pro- Protestant point of view, I mean, it's just, there it is. It's the simple gospel. He's preaching Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow he got from that to jets and COVID-19 being blown away. You know? I don't know How did he get there? How did he get from being a chauffeur, a chauffeur for Oral Roberts. Like, I don't have any money and I, God's calling me to Oklahoma to, to just be a chauffeur for Oral Roberts. You know, how does someone get from that place to the meme, the like demonic looking meme that is Kenneth Copeland? And I think we're going to see some of... um some of that process here in the text that it starts with things that none of us are um, immune to. Right. Yeah. Stuff that all of us struggle with. Like it is a major cautionary tale. He is a major cautionary tale for everyone. And especially for those in ministry, because if we think we can't end up like Kenneth Copeland we are deceived. And I'm not trying to defend him at all. Not at all. I'm just saying that, well, like I said, like what I said, like we all struggle with some of these same core things. Yeah. So um, let's dig into the good side a little bit. All right. Uh, Here we go. Now, some preach Christ from envy and strife, but some preach it from goodwill. So let's dig into this a little bit. This goodwill, eudokia, properly, what seems good or beneficial to someone, it requires, it's God's good pleasure. So it's beneficial for God, for God's glory in its purest form. And it requires that something is done through God's work of inbirthing faith. So God is the one that begins it in us. This desire to do something out of like pure motives, in a sense, goodwill for the good of God and for the good of humanity. That feeling comes from God. It's not something that we can work up. And yet, Check out Philippians 2, 2, something we're going to get into at a much 
bigger way. We're really going to dig into this later on. It's a, I, I really like this passage. But Philippians, not 2.2, 2.12, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the same word right there, that uh, eudokia. Same idea. God is working in us. So we, he's at work in us and we need to work out what he has put in us for the good of God's name, God's reputation, for the furthering of the gospel, for the good of other people. And if God's really working it in us, well, let me, let me, let me back up for a second. Why are they preaching Christ, basically? So you have this apostle that started um, the, started uh, ministries all over the known world in the Roman Empire. And this guy who's just on fire for the Lord is now stuck in prison and he may die there. Um, they don't know. And so basically, yeah, for his glory, not our glory. That's right. That's right, Jen. That's right. Um they don't know what's going to happen. And so there's this like, this hole, in a sense, in the work of the gospel. Uh, there's this hole that needs to be filled. And so you have people that are just like, well, I'm not, I'm not the speaker that Paul is. I, I'm not gifted like him, but someone needs to step up. It's very similar to what you'll see in Acts chapter 8 where there's this great persecution that is started in Jerusalem because of Stephen's, Stephen being stoned. And like everybody scatters except the apostles. No one's gone to Samaria yet. And you have one of the first deacons from Acts chapter six, Philip. And he just, he sees a need in Samaria. And he's not an apostle, but he just goes there and he be, begins to proclaim the kingdom of God there. And what happens? Well, people come to him that are demon-possessed. People come to him that need healing. And God just moves by his, by his power for his glory. Amen. Philip's doing this out of love, just like these people in, uh, in Rome and he, these people that are proclaiming the, the gospel. And Paul says these, these people that we're talking about, the latter— they do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. All right. And we talked a lot about love earlier uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago about agapetas, which is Strong's 25. And um, it is the verb form of noun, which means basically, uh, oh my Goodness, choosing God's choices by his power. Choosing God's choices by his power. And um, then we talked a little bit last week about like, why would a God who loves us so much, why would a good God want his children to suffer? And I just wanted to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this because these people, they're seeing that the gospel is getting Paul imprisoned. It's gotten him beat. It's 
gotten him stoned. It's gotten him persecuted in a plethora of ways. Why would these people now want to speak up, stand up, speak out for the gospel when they know it's going to lead them to suffer as well? Why would God want his children to suffer? And so I just wanted to, this is not like an all exhaustive answer at all, but I wanted to highlight something. God exists in relationship. And uh, I believe it's Piper that said, um, or I can't believe, I can't remember who said it, but the most, all, the most loving thing an all loving God can do is create, create other beings to enjoy him or to be able to love him. That sounds like Piper. Yeah. Um, and so here's the thing though, if you get into a relationship that's based on love, the opportunity to get hurt is, is there. I mean, it's almost inevitable that you're going to get hurt. Right. Um, and that could be like, th- think about friendship. It could be like, if, if you get a best friend, your friend may turn their back on you. Jesus definitely experienced that. Um, his buddy, Peter, who's like, I'm going to be there for you. I'm in the inner circle. Even if everybody leaves you, I will never leave you. I'll die with you. I'll die for you. And then Peter denies him three times. You know, but is it worth the potential of being hurt to experience the love that you have in a friendship? Of course. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's like a basic thing. Let's go a little bit deeper. Marriage, like what parent doesn't want their child to grow up and one day get into a healthy marriage? Like that's generally speaking a dream for every parent. But if that child gets into a marriage, they're going to get hurt. Because right. two becoming one is not a simple, easy, smooth ride. I mean, it's, it's not. Yeah. It's really hard. We have different ways that we look at money. We have different ways that we look at entertainment. We have different ways that we look at parenting, um, arguing. I mean, like, yeah. and it's just, there's going to be pain there. Even in the healthiest of marriage, there's going to be pain. But you can experience love in a far deeper way than you can in dating. Yeah. Or in a friendship. Well, there's definitely a level of, um, I don't know, commit. Yeah, commitment that you don't have in any of those. So, hopefully, in a healthy marriage, you feel like you can be yourself fully in a way that maybe you couldn't quite when you were dating. So, it's a deeper level of intimacy and it's a deeper level of connection because of that, or it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's go deeper than that. In a sense, you know. All right. You know, yeah. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. Well, if you become a parent, whether that's through natural birth or through adoption, you know, what parent doesn't want their kid to get married and have kids? Right. You have grandkids. Yeah. You know, that's just such, there's so much, there's so many blessings that come through being a parent, but you're also going to get hurt. Mm. This, and you're going to suffer. Um, a woman has to suffer immensely to actually give birth to a child. Just immense pain. You know a whole lot about that. Yeah. You know, being an L&D nurse, like you've seen just incredible suffering that that women will go that through. That produced great joy. That produ- Yeah, and yeah. that's the point. Like what mom that's given birth was like 
not worth it at all. I think also, yeah, I mean, even with that, there are people that, you know, they they get pregnant and they don't even know if their child is going to make it. Um, I think there's, you know, I've, I've known, I have a podcast, I interviewed a friend who knew that her baby wasn't going to make it and chose to carry her baby as long as she could out of love. And I think that to some people that's weird. And I think that demonstrated a whole lot of love. And I think if she had it to do over again, she would choose the same thing out of love. Yeah. 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 And so God, knowing from the beginning, the end of the story, God knowing from the beginning how Adam and Eve would turn on him. God knowing from the beginning that the religious leaders, the holiest man on earth in the world's eyes would orchestrate the murder, the torture and murder of his son. God knowing all of that still chose to send his son. Mm. And why is that? It's out of love, right? right. just want to highlight um, this passage from Romans. I, I love this passage, Romans 5, 6 through, uh, through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For ungodly, right? Sorry, you might hear our Airedale Zeke scratching the, scratching making it the a soft carpet place. to make it softer so he can lay down. <laughs> Sounds awful in the headphones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's dying and Paul goes on to call us like enemies. And... Uh, that's incredible. I can't think of a single enemy that I would die for. No. <laughs> and I just, I just. Yeah. And yet the love of God was so powerfully moving in his son, Jesus. So pure. Um, that even when Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, like he is in the garden, of Gethsemane, if there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me, he still chooses God's choices by his power. Right. And that is love. That love, as 1 John 4 says, casts out the fear. There's no fear in love. This is 1 John 4, 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We only have the ability to love because God first loved us. And it's interesting how when God's love changes, pers changes one's perspective on suffering. When God's love is really flowing through us, it just changes the way we look at things. Like, like a woman saying, I'll absolutely give birth to this kid, even if it's going to rip me open. You know, like I will absolutely do that. Or a parent, I will absolutely die for my kid. I will absolutely 
because I love them. Right. Um, yeah. So these people are looking at this opportunity, even though it may be scary, these people in Rome, to go preach the gospel. Um, the ones who are doing this out of love are just like, I will absolutely step up, even though it's scary, even though it may cost me everything, because God first loved me and laid down his life for me. So I'm going to lay down my life for God. All right? And these people do it out of love, continuing with uh, Philippians 1, verse 16, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, this is a really interesting word. This word appointed, that Paul is appointed for the defense of the gospel, kimai, means to be laid down, to be placed, destined, specially appointed. Paul has been placed in Rome for the defense of the gospel by God. God has put him there for that specific purpose. I want to show you, I think this is the first time it's used in the New Testament. If it's not, it's one of the first times. But it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a really interesting verse, passage, all right? Passage, starting in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That word set right there is the same word that Paul says in Philippians 1.16, that he has been appointed. Now, this is really interesting. A city set on a hill is a term for Jerusalem. It was the city set on a hill so that the nations could look at Jerusalem and see what God is like, basically. And yet, Jesus applies that to his followers, that the world should be looking at us to see what God is like. We are here specifically to glorify or to reveal the character of God. And one of the ways that we do that is, Paul, uh, Jesus says, it's when you're persecuted for righteousness, when you're being a peacemaker, when you're being merciful, when you're mourning, when you're poor in spirit, when you're meek, you're showing the world what God is like. Hmm. And you've been specifically placed where you are for that purpose. And I I think also with those things you described, what the people of God should be like or what God is like, it's very much different than the world. I mean, and, um, you know, you don't, 
you can't behave like the world and expect people to see the difference or people to see God in your behavior. And um, I think that's something that, you know, it's challenging to me, especially when we looked at that verse earlier that talked about people who won't inherit the kingdom of, of God. But I think that's something we should be striving toward. Um, BRC7591 says Polycarp's martyrdom is an inspiration of that love. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So many different stories of martyrs or inspiration of willingness to lay your life down, not, not as a aggressive act, not with a gun, I'm going to take down as many people as I can to defend my people, but I'm willing to lay down my life. Yeah. Yeah. Like we talked a lot about Polycarp in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, last week, but short recap of that martyrdom uh, is that Polycarp, along with other uh, leaders in the church, had been uh, get it, had been hunted down basically, and they came to Polycarp City, and so he fled to a different a different city, like, or he fled to the country, basically. And a boy uh, got caught by some of the soldiers. He turned Polycarp in. They came to Polycarp's house. Polycarp didn't run away then. Um, He invites them in. Think about like the Sermon on the Mount stuff with this. He invites them in. He prepares a meal for them. He spends an hour praying for them and for himself. And he's telling them about the gospel along the way. He does not back down, but he doesn't try to raise an army against them. He courageously stands for the gospel as a defense of the gospel. He is a city set on a hill. In a sense, God comes to him in a dream, basically tells him to play the man, Polycarp, which is Polycarp interpreting, look, you have come to show the world how Jesus would handle this situation. So you act like Jesus in this moment, and he does. It's a really powerful story. You can find it online. There's several different versions, like translations of it, basically. Um, Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's an early Christian document from the um, from the first half of the second century AD. Let's jump into this a little bit more, this text a little bit more. So Philippians 1.16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. I want to just look really quick at different ways that Polycarp talks about the gospel. Polycarp. Hmm. How Paul Paul. (laughs) talks about the gospel in Philippians. All right. Um, So verse five of chapter one, Paul talks about uh, the participation in the gospel. He's thanking God because of the Philippians' participation in the gospel, that word coming out of the word koinonia, this fellowship, this intense sharing of all things. They're sharing in the gospel. Verse seven, I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. So we're supposed to participate in the gospel, to really share in it, not just going to heaven, but really sharing in this good news we're supposed to defend and confirm the gospel. We already talked about the defense aspect. The confirmation is basically making something so plain that it's undeniable. The truth is undeniable. Now, someone can reject it, but it's been made so plain to them. Think about um, Pharaoh and the plagues. Mm-hmm. Like It was so clear to Pharaoh that Yahweh is the true God. 
It's undeniable. Right. He rejected it, but it was so plain. Right. That's the way we're supposed to make it so plain for people. Um, verse 12, he says, my, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. We talked about how that word progress is like someone going through the jungle with a machete, just clearing a path. And then again, in verse 16, we're appointed for the defense of the gospel. What do you think's on Paul's mind? That he's in prison. What's the main thing that's on Paul's mind as he's writing this? How is this going to advance the gospel? That's right. Yeah. It's just all about the gospel. That's what's driving everything is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Right. It's not about having a bigger ministry. Mm. It's not having more popularity. He does not care about that stuff. Mm -hmm. He wants the gospel to go forward. If I have to get stoned, if I have to get beaten, if I have to go to a place that I don't want to go to, wherever I have to go, I, I just want to go to further the gospel. Right. And I can't say that that's always been my motive. No. You know, and, and, and we're going to get into that right now. So Paul basically does the sandwich method uh, in a sense. Like here, he's done, like, you know, when you want to like- Give bad news. Give Yeah, you say, something, you say something nice first mm -hmm. and then you give the critique and then you- A but, gently worded critique usually. Yeah, but yeah. remember- Yeah. You're my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I love you. Yeah. <laughs> We're best friends. Well, Paul's doing that in an opposite way right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. So he talked first about like these people that are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. Then he hits the people that are doing it out of um, goodwill and out of love. And then he comes again with this rebuke. Now the former, okay, this is uh, Philippians 1.17. The former, those are those people that are preaching Christ out of envy or from envy and strife, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking that they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. We're going to get into this distress stuff in a minute. I'll just kind of introduce it right now. They believe that since Paul's in prison, they think Paul's going to get mad that they're now the stars in Rome. They're preaching Christ for, the, for their glory. Um, I'm going to share a, a story and then Stephanie's going to take it for a little bit and talk about a book that she's been reading. Awesome book. But you know, I remember the early days uh, of ministry work. I remember feeling like I was called to ministry uh, at a lock-in I was leading worship for when I was in the latter part of my 20th year. Um, I just kind of come out of like massive drug addiction and depression and God was starting to use me and teach me how to lead worship. And I was doing it for free, you know, basically for my church. I was leading worship for the youth group on uh, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and um, just... It was amazing. I was so overwhelmed that God would want to use someone like me. And I remember one night just feeling overcome by the Holy Spirit 
and believing that God had called me into ministry. I didn't know what that meant at all, but I was just, yeah, like send me, I'll go wherever. Within a couple of months, I started getting calls from strangers, ministry leaders in different churches, whether they were from Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, non-denominational churches. I played at a Catholic church once. I played at a Lutheran church. Like I was playing in all different types of churches, leading retreats, doing some camps. It just kind of took off out of nowhere. And I never made a phone call to ask someone if I could play at their place. Um, Within about a year, as, as I was getting paid for this, and this was turning into basically a part-time job while I was going to school, I started really getting the sense that, man, I could do this for a living. This is what I want to do for a living. I want to basically be a Christian rock star for God's glory, of course. But that's what I want to do. And I remember, I, was, I think I was 23 22 or 23, um, and a mentor of mine knew that I was kind of struggling with not not wanting to be in uh, college anymore. I kind of saw it as a waste of time, even though I was um, I was a Christianity major and psych major. I was like, man, this is this is a waste of time. I need to be out playing more people. School is keeping playing in more places. Sorry, school is keeping me from doing what God wants me to do. And I remember this mentor told me, Phil. I really believe God has told me that um, once you graduate college, then your ministry is just going to really take off. And I took that as a word from the Lord. And so it really did motivate me to finish school. But I was motivated not for God's glory, but so that I could begin to really shine Mm -hmm. in a sense. I remember my life first at the time was like um, 1 Peter 5, 6, which is to humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time. And in scripture, it's, it's absolutely true, but I was not really seeking for God to exalt me for him to be exalted. It was more about me getting to do music full time. Mm-hmm. You know? And that, I remember he took songwriting away from me for about six months. I could not write a song. And it was a scary time for me because at the time I had already written like hundreds of songs. And to have that taken away was terrifying, but I think God was trying to get my attention. I think it was a huge blessing at the time, but and selfish ambition is just so destructive, but I think it's so prevalent in Christian ministries uh, and Christian leadership. And Steph, you've been reading a book That's just incredible. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, There's a book by Chuck DeGroat called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And um, I had a friend kind of post it online and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. 
And um, I am very much an audiobook person, which, you know, to a lot of people is, that's not really reading, but we won't go there. Um, the, the book was incredible. It was very much like just eye-opening. And one of the things that they talked about is just how people in ministry, or how ministry is a magnet for narcissists. Um, because, well, for one, you're, you have the opportunity to speak for God. And so for a narcissist, that's very appealing. I, I feel like I could speak with that kind of authority. And um, yeah, I mean, to other folks, to folks that are humble, that's, that's a warning to us. But um, yeah, I just wrote down a couple of notes on things. Um, but one of the things they talk about is narcissism personality disorder. Uh, these people may be talented, charming, even inspiring, but they lack the capacity for self-awareness and self-evaluation. They shun humility for self-protection. So, Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. One of the words that he uses is phonerability. Yeah, like Not, F-A-U-X, phonerability. Yeah. Can you explain how that's different than humility and vulnerability real quick? Um, I don't know if I'm going to do it justice, but it's more like, um, you know, playing the part of, you know, I've, I've messed up, but you speak in generalities. You're never really specific, or you talk about something that you struggled with long ago and not something that you're currently dealing with. Um, and that way you look vulnerable, you look relatable, but at the same time, you look very holy. So it's, it's a faux or a fake vulnerable vulnerability. Um, or sometimes it's used to put other people down, And so we kind of talked about that too. Um, But narcissism may manifest in a variety of ways depending on different personality types. We know that there's all different kinds of personality types. Um, So so this may look like perfectionism that commands control, uh, commands and controls the church. So they're running the ship totally. Um, A challenging personality that does not allow any correction or criticism if you've got a leader that you can't ask questions of or you can't critique, that's a scary place to be. Or they might have a savior mentality that grows angry and judgmental toward anyone that falls short of their expectations. They expect people to give and give and give without any sort of um, expectations that they might have a life outside of the church. Or it might be a slick-talking, like, quote, winner that can be belligerent, manipulative, dominating, and condescending. Um, they can also uh, inflict trauma or spiritual abuse. So the, what this might look like is humiliating. So maybe at a staff meeting, they call out in front of everyone, they call out the errors that somebody's had. Um, hypercriticism, maybe they, they withhold praise so that they can just tear you down and tear you down. I mean, that's psychological abuse in a way. Um, Silencing. If they hear any kind of critique, they're going to shut it down. They don't want anybody to critique. Um, Exclusion, like it's us versus these folks over here. Um, They, or maybe they're having an affair. So they, they use this expression, narcissist bite comes without leaving a physical wound. So a lot of these deep wounds, you can't see anything physically but there is deep, deep hurt there. Um, I've seen some folks who have been hurt by narcissism in the church and um, spiritual abuse, and they have 
basically all left ministry in a lot of ways because they've been burned by the experiences that they had. Um, people that have, you know, incredible ministry experiences over the years. But um, also, you know, it's not what happens to us, but we what we hold in the absence of an empathetic witness. So it was important for, in this in the book, he talked about the importance of, um, if you hear something, that's a concern that someone brings up. We need to be an empathetic witness. Um, we need to listen to that person and not just look at this charismatic person who's up on the stage or this personality that's really nice and charming and believe that they're perfect because obviously we know they're not perfect. We've seen enough churches where the pastor has been involved in affairs or um, embezzling money or whatever to know that this person that looks great may not be. Um, we've seen it in all different areas, not just to criticize pastors, but we, you know, we've seen it so many times we should know that it's possible. Um, and we should be able to ask questions. And if you can't ask questions, that's a real problem. But, um, I think one of the great things that, uh, Chuck DeGroat talks about is that one, these are just people and two, that they are capable of being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ at work. So he says healing, or it talks about how healing requires radical honesty with ourselves and the courage to follow through on this wilderness path. So we don't always know what the whole path ahead is going to look like. And this is when somebody is finally honest enough to realize, oh man, there's a problem. We must evaluate ourselves. We must die to our old patterns. So the old person can't stay. Um, we often, we or he recommended having a guide or someone on the outside to help us with this. It might be a counselor or somebody that can truly be honest with you, not just a yes man, somebody who will tell you the things that hurt you to your core out of love. Um, so that we can enter the promised land, you know, that's not a magical place, but a space of freedom and relational flourishing. Transformation is possible. So yeah, sorry, that's a lot of talk about the book, but it was it was really, really good for me. And um, I highly recommend it. I think Chuck DeGroat did a great job of being humble and presenting a topic that we still need to talk about. You know, we can still critique, you know, if we're coming at it in humility. And I think he did a, a good job because there's been a lot of hurt caused by narcissism in the church. Yeah, and... Um... Toward the beginning of what you were saying, you said that it was a uh, narcissism is like a hotbed for church planners or something like that. Other way around. Church planning is a hotbed for narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. That's dyslexia for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously you and I planted a church mm -hmm. in 2012. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd done like, the worship leading stuff. I had done the youth ministry stuff, college ministry stuff. Um, I had, uh, what's that interim pastor? I was an interim pastor for a while, for like six months or so. And then people were telling me that you should plant your own church. And that's what we ended up doing. A little house church that grew. And I remember about four years later, um, I was feeling really messed up, um, just emotionally, and talked to you about it, talked to you know, my father-in-law, your dad, 
Um, my dad, some friends in ministry, talked to a counselor that I've been seeing. And everybody was basically telling me, like, you're not supposed to be a pastor. And that was, um, that was really difficult to hear because that's what I had been, like, going for from about 2004. Like, seeing, taking these steps one step after another and finally gotten to that place. And um, I remember the counselor uh, told me, Phil, I think you're supposed to be a teacher. Like and you I, said, a public school teacher. Yeah, and I got really angry at that. Mm -hmm. Like really, really upset. Um, and here I am. <laughs> but I think that was like one of the healthiest things for me um, to get out, to get out of that. Yeah. Because as much as I wanted it to be about God, it was too much about me. And my my dream for my life that I thought God had it had for me. Yeah. Um. So, like you, I think you talked about how sometimes they need to go into a wilderness experience. And I'm not saying Chuck DeGroote is saying this, but maybe it would be good for a lot of these people in ministry to get a tent making job. Yeah. To be able to do things out of pure motives to continue working for the gospel without viewing it as what helps you pay your bills. I, I was just um, given a text response to what we were talking about, but um, that people are afraid to speak up because pastors set themselves up as spiritual authorities, anointed and untouchable. If your pastor ever says that they are, purports that they should be untouchable, oh. that is... Yeah, and I think they, they would use like, you shall not touch the Lord's anointed as if they're... But if the pastor is the saying Lord's that anointed, about that it's themselves... That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not... Mm -mm. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's abusive. Yeah. For sure. All right, now, here's, here's this word selfish ambition. And it means someone who is a work for hire properly... Work done merely for hire as a mercenary. Referring there to, therefore to carnal ambition. Because mercenaries don't care about the kingdom that they're fighting for. Like, if some barbarians joined up with Rome to fight some Gauls, you know, like some, some barbarian mercenaries, they don't care about Rome what they care about, if they do care at all about Rome, they only want Rome to win so that they get paid. They're not fighting. They're not fighting for the kingdom. They're fighting for themselves. And my goodness, if there's anybody in ministry out there that's listening to this, you need to really... I have to take a look at my life and you need to take a look at your life too. Mm. Are you a shepherd or a mercenary? Are you a pastor or are you a mercenary? Let's see what Jesus has to say about mercenaries, basically, in the gospel. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, the hired hand sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. This hired hand flees because he's a hired hand. And he's not concerned about the sheep. So they're not preaching Christ from pure motives. See, pure motives, this hognos, it means with sincerity, purely without inner contamination or duplicity. That word only occurs in Philippians 1.17. They preach without inner contamination. So the opposite, what Paul is saying, is that these preachers with envy and strife are preaching Christ with duplicity. Mm-hmm. They're claiming to be a shepherd while really they're a mercenary. I think it's really scary because contamination, especially when you use that for that that terminology, it doesn't take much to contaminate, right? Like, you know, the yeah. analogy, if I told yeah, yeah, you yeah. there was a brownie with a, a little bit of poo in there, would you eat them? Right. No, I mean, it's contamination a little bit gets, you know, ruins. And so it's really convicting that are we, do we truly have a pure heart? And I think that this is, should be, I mean, there, and there's cautions throughout the Bible to people seeking to be in forms of leadership or to be over a church in some way. You need to, you know, or if you're going to be a teacher, you need to evaluate yourself, basically. And this was before there were mega churches, you know? So this was, this was still a problem even before there were pe- pastors making millions. So I think that's, um, Think that's really scary, but I think that should cause us to to really evaluate deeply and to allow people to speak truth to us that might say hard things. If we only have people around us that say encouraging stuff, I think that's a that's a that's a scary place. Yep. Yeah. Just want to show y'all a little something again. What Paul says about some contamination in church leadership. This is in Acts 20, starting in verse 28. This is when he's talking to the elders at Ephesus or elders from Ephesus as he's on his way to to Jerusalem. He tells them to be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So perhaps one of the impure motives with Philippi is because they wanted to, the, these people that are preaching Christ are doing so perhaps to take away folks that have been following Paul and make them their own disciples. And one of the ways they do it is by speaking perverse things. And that's kind of along the same idea of this, this twisted. It's twisted. I had a comment yeah. also that was like just 
you know, liking, I guess, um, Balaam, calling him a the prophet for hire. So we're kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, you know, what? where are you? Are you the shepherd or are you the mercenary? Are you for hire? You know, mm. can you Yeah, and you remember out? how God... Um, how God felt about Balaam. Right. You know, the donkey had more sense than him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as you God love was that about to be to, your legacy. Right? The angel of the Lord was about <laughs> to cut me in half. Yeah. That you had to get your, your donkey to, to have some sense because you didn't. <sighs> yeah. Now here's another thing that I want to bring up, it's not necessarily about church leadership, but it's a warning nonetheless for the way that the American church does things today. Um, 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I just think about that um, thumbnail. The guy we were talking about earlier, you know, you don't just become Kenneth Copeland one day. Right. That's a long dive down. And you're probably surrounded. You've probably chosen to surround yourself with yes men who also want to be rich and famous. It's a long, easy road down to destruction. Now, what's interesting, here's some rebuke from Paul for them in a kind of a different way. In verse... 17, these people that are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, they think that they're causing Paul distress in his imprisonment. And this cause me distress, flipsis, means pressure, constricts or rubs together. Think of a python. They think they're squeezing Paul in like a python, they're causing him that kind of distress. And oh my gosh, can you imagine getting eaten by a python? <laughs> like that, that's... It's always where your brain that's, goes. That's where my brain goes. Yeah. That terif- that'd be so terrifying, you know? And they think they're putting that kind of internal pressure, that exterior pressure, they think they're causing internal pressure like that on Paul. But they're not. They're not. Remember, Paul said in Philippians 1, 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. They think they're causing Paul strife He's not even focused on that. Right. His mindset's totally different. Right. Which is why he says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And this is got to be like, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like this is a 
gut punch. It's intended to be a gut punch to these preachers with impure motives. And he says, and in this, that Christ is proclaimed, I'm rejoicing in this. Mic drop. Yeah, it is. It really is. You know, this pretense word is like a pretext, an excuse. One of the first times that you see it is these Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites, you devour a widow's houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. Mark 12, Jesus basically saying the same thing. His teaching was, was saying, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor and banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake same word, appearances sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. When Paul's talking about these people doing it in pretense, Paul knows the Pharisees. He was one. He was one. And Jesus does not have kind things to say about Pharisees. That's one of the things that he gets them with. The second thing is this idea. These people, the others, are preaching them in truth, straightforwardness, and sincerity. It's like, I know you. Jesus knows you. God knows you. He sees through it. And last, and in this I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. You remember what he said at the beginning of the passage about envy. It's this strong feeling that sours due to the influence of sin. The miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. It's miserable. Just like I was talking about earlier in, in this episode about how going to a concert and wanting to like have a great time. And yet that envy makes me, made me miserable. Right. Paul is saying, you guys can go be miserable. I'm going to rejoice Amen. because my focus is on Christ being proclaimed, defending the gospel, participating in the gospel bringing progress to the gospel. So Paul is seeing all of this corruption and yet he's rejoicing. So a question I would ask is, how have you seen God's grace moving despite corruption? And whether it's corruption in government, whether it's corruption in church, whether it's corruption, who knows? But how have you seen God's grace moving? Because that's the idea of rejoicing, being conscious, conscious and mindful of God's grace. Paul's rejoicing in that. So how have you seen it, Phil? Well, you know, the, some of the people that have texted you mm -hmm. are uh, folks that we met at the last place that we were at, where we saw a whole lot of corruption and yet God brought to us friends, lifelong friends. Should we talk COVID-19, Andrew says? <laughs> I was thinking that too. Yeah. Well, God brought us 
lifelong friends that seem for me at least more like family, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, uh, than just mere friends, um, that we would not have been able to have. Right. Um, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. And man, I rejoice about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a good one. I mean, everywhere that we've gone along the way, even, you know, we've had a lot of hurt, different places, not just, you know, one place. But um, I think that my idea of what church is has changed, and I think in a, in a good way. Um, my level of intimacy within my my friendships has grown deeper um, as the kind as God is providing these gracious gifts of of friends to to go through suffering with, yeah. Um, yeah. And I I think that that's just His kindness because I mean God is still faithful even if He didn't give us friends right. out of that experience. Um, but just so nice of Him to yeah. to give us those kind of blessings. The call from God, I feel that God's giving me um, is what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. It's like, I know you're doing these good things. You don't tolerate um, heretics, basically. But this I have against you, that you've forsaken the love you had at first. So repent and return, right? Come back to those early days, basically, why you got in it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist or Reformed person, but I've listened to a whole lot of Tim Keller messages. And um, one of the things that he like hammers in his very, very gentle way is the need for us to continually, Christians to continually preach the gospel to themselves. I need to hear that. While I was a sinner, an enemy of God, completely helpless, without God, without hope, no hope. God demonstrated his love by his son dying for me. Um, To pay the price that was needed to not just make me forgiven in God's eyes, it's true. To make me justified in God's eyes, that's true. But to bring him into his family. To make me an adopted son. A new name, new hope, a new power to choose godliness through his spirit. To transform me into the image of his son. Give me an inheritance which can never spoil or fade. Am I misled by this world calls beauty and have I bought into a lie am I misled by what this world says that I need and what it says will satisfy oh no I've grown cold from chasing fool's gold It shines so brightly I think if I was blinded I could see That all I 